We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. standing for a reading from 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, you say. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own. Do not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, we give you thanks that none of us are in this room this morning by accident, but we are here because you have brought us here, whether this is our first time being in church in a long time, whether it's our first time ever, whether this is something we do every week. Would you give us faith to believe this morning that that is the reason that we're here? Would you give us ears to hear what you have for us in this text? Would you, would you meet us wherever we find ourselves on the spectrum of belief this morning? Some of us, we, we sing these songs and we just there's a sense of joy in our life, a sense of your presence and your goodness. And others of us, we, we sing these songs and they just, they just fall kind of flat. And we time thinking that we could actually ever believe these things are true. Wherever we are on the spectrum of belief this morning, would you meet us? Would you help us to see that we are more in need than we can really know? But you are more gracious, more kind, more loving than we could ever comprehend or fathom. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can take your seats. 
Uh, well, good morning. My name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, ever since Easter Sunday, which was about five weeks ago, we've, we've been in a series, and we've been looking at how the resurrection changes and transforms our lives. And I, I've tried to say this every week, that the resurrection is not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's actually something that once you believe it happened, it begins to change every part of your life. You know, Christianity is utterly unique amongst world religions. It's utterly unique. It, it, it's not based on what its founder taught. It's based on what its founder did. Jesus either rose from the dead or he didn't. And if the resurrection didn't happen, guess what? It changes nothing. But if it did happen, then it changes everything. Now, let me put it to you this way. If Jesus is still in the grave... You should not listen to anything that he says. But if he defeated the grave, then you really have, you've got one choice, and that is to surrender every part of your life to him. And so this is what we've been looking at, how the resurrection, uh, we've looked at how it, it gives us a new identity. It transforms our identity. You get a whole new identity. You are loved by the God of the universe, not because of who you are or what you have done, but because you are in Christ. And it transforms our view of freedom, that freedom, that the modern view of freedom says you want to do, and Christianity actually says, no, you experience real freedom when your life is brought under the gracious rule and reign of God that leads to your flourishing and to the world's flourishing. And then last week we looked at how the resurrection says that you can change. Change is possible. That, that this, is what, this is what the New Testament says, that the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that God is using to change your life. Now, today, we're looking at how this passage says the resurrection transforms our view of singleness and sex and marriage. I want you to look at verse 14. It says, by his power... God raised Jesus from the dead, and he will raise us also. Right here in the middle of these verses on sex and sexuality and singleness and marriage, Paul starts talking about the resurrection. You know why? Because the resurrection changes everything, even these things. Even these things. You know, let me say a couple things. First, Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. Forget about that. Let's clap for our moms. Yep. And what, a, what an awesome sermon for Mother's Day. Okay, so, so actually, in all seriousness, uh, this, is a, this is a very sensitive topic this morning. And, you know, I know some of you, you, you saw that this was the sermon topic, and you got really excited um, but others of you got very nervous. And, you know, for a lot of people in this room, uh, this immense pain and sadness. I mean, we, we come into this room with deep shame and guilt for things that we've done uh, or for things that have been done to us, for ways that we've actually been violated. Uh, some of us come, we, we come lonely and longing for marriage. Uh, some of us come lonely and stuck in a really hard marriage. Some of us come with stories of failed marriages. That's my story, actually. 
Some of us, we, we come uh, trapped in sexual addiction. We, we, there are things, there are secrets in our lives that not even the closest people to us know about, not even our spouse. Uh, some of us, particularly those in the LGBTQ community, we come with desires that we feel like the church either it doesn't know how to talk about or it's not a safe place to talk about. And I just I want you to hear a couple I want you to hear me say a couple things this morning before we dive in. Here's the first thing. If you are nervous, you don't need to be nervous. You do not need to be afraid this morning. And I'm gonna tell you why. Because God will never shame you. That's not how God operates. God never shames people. He wants you to experience his compassion and his kindness and his healing and his transforming power in your life. You don't need to be afraid. You just need to be open. Here's the second thing. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're just here trying to figure out if you can believe these things, we're so glad you're here. You need to know that the demands that we're going to be talking about this morning, they come on the other side of knowing Jesus and his grace. That's very important. Third, every person in this room, every person in this room is sexually broken, including the one who is teaching. So you need to know that I'm not speaking as someone who has it all together this morning, but I'm speaking from our common ground of shared brokenness and need. Fourth, we're not going to agree on all these issues. I'm going to say some things this morning that not everyone is going to agree with, and that's okay because this is not a church where everyone has to be in the same place. And then here's the last thing. A sermon for this topic, it's so insufficient. You know, we need to like, we need to preach on these things because the Bible talks about these things. So if we don't, we just, we look like we're, we're kind of dodging bullets in the Bible. We look like we're picking and choosing. So we need to talk about them, but you know, a sermon is really unfair because it's a one-way conversation. And the reality is, is that there's a lot of stories in this room and a lot of personal questions that many of you will have. And so what you need to hear me say is, I would love to get together with you over coffee or lunch to talk about your own story and your own questions after this. All right, so let's dive in. This passage tells us that the resurrection does three things. It transforms our vision of sex, it, it, it transforms our approach to marriage and singleness, and it transforms our relationship with God. All right, first, it transforms, it gives us a new vision of sex. Now, we see this in the very first section printed for you, verses 12 through 20 of chapter 6, but I want you to look per particularly at verses 19 and 20. Paul says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, Paul is saying something very countercultural here. So he says, your body does not belong to you. Your body belongs to God, to the one who made it. And that is the exact opposite of what modern culture says. Modern culture says, you should be able to do whatever you want to do with your body as long as you aren't hurting anyone else. I mean, you know, consent has become like the, the, the way that we operate around issues of sexuality. 
You should be, no, no one should be able to tell you what you can and cannot do with your body. Not your parents, not your community, not your friends, not your religion, not your church, and not your God. Stanley Hauerwas, who taught for years at Notre Dame and then Duke University, he, he writes this. He says, Christians do not believe that we have the right to do whatever we want with our bodies. We do not believe that we have a right to our bodies because when we are baptized, we become members of Christ's body. It's actually what Paul says in this text in verse 15 and 17. Hauerwas, he continues, he says, any religion that does not tell you what to do with your genitals cannot be interesting. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. He says that is exactly true. God tells us what you can and cannot do with your genitals. They are not your own. They are not private. You see, the Christian vision of sex starts with this very countercultural view that says our body saying yes to Jesus means saying no to sexual autonomy. And that is a vital part of the Christian sex ethic. Now, it's important to see that the Christian vision of sex, it starts there, but it doesn't end there. It does not end there. Because it, what Paul, what the whole New Testament is trying to get you to see is the wonder and the beauty of the Christian vision of sex. And Paul does this by dealing with two popular views. Now, here's something interesting. The Apostle Paul is writing, it's about 50 A.D., Okay? That's what you call a very long time ago. And we tend to think that as modern society, you know, we're 2,000 years down the road, we're much more progressive, we're much more advanced, we're much more open-minded than these ancient societies. But get this, both of the views that Paul is dealing with in this passage they are still the two dominant views of the way that we think about sex today. Here's the first one. The first one is actually in verse 12. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say. Now notice, notice that those words are in quotes. So that's what Paul is doing is he's actually quoting the Corinthians' words back to them. And he's saying, look, I have the right to do anything, you say, which means they have the same view of the body that we have. But, then he's, but you need to see what's underneath this for them and where it comes from. A little context here. Paul is writing to Christians in the city of Corinth. Now, the Romans had built Corinth into one of the greatest cities in the ancient world. It was a center of trade. And so what that means is people went there to make it in life. It was a place of incredible wealth. It was a place of incredible power. And those were the things that people worshipped in that city. Wealth. Status, power, you know what else they worshipped? Sex. In the dead center of the city of Corinth was the temple of Epaphrodite, the goddess of love and sex. And every night, a thousand prostitutes would leave this temple and they would go out into the city. It's made Vegas look tame, okay? So, Get this, this was a place, it literally, it literally deified sex. I mean, this is a place that said, 
Sex is everything. That sex and romance are these ultimate goods and you cannot have a fulfilling life unless you have these things. Now a lot has changed in 2,000 years. But that hasn't actually. And you know, in fact, the great 21st century philosopher Bruno Mars, he says this. This is from his song, Locked Out of Heaven. Never had much faith in love or miracles. Never want to put my heart on the line. But swimming in your water is something spiritual. I'm born again. Listen, I am born again every time you spend the night. You take me to paradise. I'm having to paraphrase. We've got some little kids in here this morning. You take me to paradise because you make me feel like I've been locked out of heaven. You bring me to my knees. You make me testify. You can make a sinner change his ways. Do you hear how religious that is? That is, now, let me tell you, very catchy. But that is the language of worship. It is the language that says, look, sex is this ultimate thing. And it can fulfill your deepest longings and desires. And if you don't have it, you will be empty. Now that's the first view of sex that Paul deals with. Sex is everything. The second is just the opposite. A little more quickly here. The second doesn't say sex is everything. It says sex is nothing. Look at verse 13. Paul says, food for the stomach and stomach for food. Now again, notice these words are in quotes. So Paul is quoting the Corinthians words back to them. Why does Paul go from talking about sex to eating? We're talking about sex to food. And the answer is because people had come to think of sex as nothing more than an appetite. When you are hungry, you eat. No big deal. When you want to have sex, you have sex. You know, nobody's making a big deal out of pizza unless, unless it's the star deep dish on Grant. Sorry, little side note there. Got to interject some humor in this sermon. Nobody's making a big deal out of pizza. Why would we make a big deal out of sex? And you see, just like the first view, this view is alive and well. Now, author Lauren Winter she says that we are a schizophrenic culture when it comes to sex. She writes this. She says, secular society tells us simultaneously that sex is no big deal and that it's the most important thing in the universe. Sex is so banal and meaningless that we can have random, casual sex with our next-door neighbor, yet sex is so hugely significant that we cannot possibly live without it. No wonder we're confused. Paul says both of these views are wrong, and he actually gives us an entirely different vision for sex. He says sex is not nothing. Sex is not everything. Sex is a, hear this, it's a whole life commitment thing. And look at his logic. In verse 16, he says, a man should not sleep with a prostitute. And the reason he gives comes in the second part of that verse where he says, for it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now notice again, these words are in quotes. Now this time, Paul is not quoting the Corinthians. He's actually quoting the Bible. These are the words that God used to describe the very first marriage, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, between the very first man and the very first woman, where he gave them the very first command. Some of you think that 
God is down on sex. Do you know what the very first command in the Bible is? Be fruitful and multiply. God took two people without clothes on and he put them in a garden. And I'll leave it up to you to use your imagination to know what happened. This is the very first command that you find in all the scriptures. Now, what, what, what is Genesis 2 talking about when it says one flesh? Genesis 2 is not just referring to physical oneness, physical union that happens in intercourse. No, it is talking about physical oneness as a reflection of whole life oneness. Listen to these words from Tertullian. He was a Christian in the second century, and he wrote this about what it means to be one flesh. He says, How beautiful then the marriage of two Christians. Two hope. One in desire. One in the way of life they follow. One in the religion they practice. They are his brother and sister, both servants of the same master. Nothing divides them, either in flesh or in spirit. They are in very truth two in one flesh. They pray together. They worship together. They fast together. They encourage one another. They strengthen one another. Side by side, they visit God's church and partake of God's table. Side by side, they face difficulties and persecution and share their consolations. They have no secrets from one another. They never shun each other's company. They never bring sorrow to each other's hearts. They visit the sick and assist the needy. They are generous with all that they have. And hearing and seeing this, Christ rejoices. Now we are getting at the wonder and the beauty of the Christian vision of sex. That from the very beginning, sex was created by God as a way for one person to say to another, I belong completely and exclusively to you in every way, legally, socially, financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually. It was designed by God to be a way of saying, I don't just give you my body. I give you all of me. I give you my whole life. Now, let me ask you a question. I mean, isn't isn't this what we long for? This kind of intimacy, this kind of permanence, this kind of security, this kind of whole life commitment to know that someone is willing to not just give us their bodies, but to give us all of themselves. And to know that we are loved, not just for our bodies, but for our whole selves. And you see, this is why the Christian vision of sex has always, it's always been restricted to marriage. Because sex outside of marriage can never give you whole life commitment. It can never give you that. Sex outside of marriage says, I will give you my body, but not my money. I'll give you my body, but not my future. I'll give you my body, but not the promise that when you and I find out what what each other is really like, I'm not going anywhere. Brings us to the next point. 
feel like we need a joke here. It feels a little heavy. Okay. I've got some here later on coming, so just hang in there. Listen, that brings us to the next point, because, you know, as wonderful as this Christian vision of sex is, let me, let me say this, well over half this room is single. So this whole vision of sex, I mean, it sounds great if you're married, but what if you're single? What if you never get married? What if you are destined to miss out on this vision? Well, Christianity gives us a whole new approach to marriage and singleness. We see this in chapter 7, verse 27. Let me read it again. Paul says, are you pledged to a woman? That means are you married? Do not seek to be Are you free from such a commitment? That means are you, you're single. Do not look for a wife. Paul is saying, look, if you're married, stay married. And if you're single, don't be so quick to change your marital status. Now, this was shocking in the first century. Because if you were not married, guess what? You were a nobody. The thing that gave you status and security in, in a traditional ancient culture was not individual fame or achievement or accomplishment. It was family. To have a family meant you were financially secure. It, it, meant, that you had, it meant that you had honor in society. It, it meant that you had a built-in support system. You know, if things went wrong... You had people to catch you. And, and, and Paul, you know, why would Paul look at a single person and say, don't be so quick to get married? I mean, does Paul, is Paul hating on marriage? It actually reminds me that Chris Rock, here's a little joke. Chris Rock has a joke. He says, you can either be single and lonely or married and bored. I think he's wrong, but I think that's kind of funny. You know, like, is that what Paul is saying here? Is that what Paul is saying? Is he hating on marriage? No. Paul celebrates marriage in other places. So what is, what is Paul getting at? Why would he say this? Well, the answer comes in verse 29. He says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. This sounds like the worst marriage advice you could ever give somebody. You know, is Paul saying that you should neglect your spouse or neglect your family? It's a very short chapter 12. There's a scene where Jesus is with a group of his followers and they're in a home. And his, his biological family shows up at the door, his mom and his brothers. And someone comes to him and they say, Jesus... Your family is at the door. You know what Jesus says? He looks around the room and he says to everyone in the room, he says, these are my brothers. These are my mothers. These are my sisters. He says, anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my family. Now, you know what Jesus is doing in that moment? He is redefining our understanding of family. According to Jesus, if you are a Christian, your primary family unit is not the people that you are related to biologically or legally by marriage. You know what Jesus says? It's the people that you are connected to spiritually. The body of Christ. The church. In fact, the primary metaphor for the church in the New Testament is a family 
It says God is our Father. Jesus is our brother. We are one another's brothers and sisters. And let me tell you, this is so radical, and it is so countercultural, and it has so many implications for our lives. I want to talk directly to a couple groups of people real quick. The first is for those who are married and for those who have families. The first application is this. Friends, we need to repent. We need to repent for the ways that we have idolized marriage and for the ways primarily in terms of spouse and kids in total disregard of Jesus' own definition. Here's another thing for those who are married and have kids. Marriage and family, it's a wonderful gift. So do not neglect your spouse or your children. Do not neglect them. But at the same time, do not neglect your family in this community. Do not neglect your brothers and sisters in this body, especially those who are not married, especially those who are widowed, especially those who are single. See, do you open your home to those people? Or when you think about who you want to have over, do you just think about who's going to mesh well with your kids? Who has kids that are going to mesh well with your kids? No. Open your home to single people. Invite them over. Sit next to them in church. I read an article this week from a woman who's a Christian. She said when it's often the case that she and her husband, they don't sit together in church. She said, we walk in and we look for people who have no one to sit with. And if we see more than one, sometimes we sit separately. See your family, your nuclear family, as a larger, as a part of a larger ecosystem of God's kingdom. Help us become a church where every unmarried person feels like when they walk through the doors of this place and they become a part of this community, they become a part of a family. For those of you who are single, you know what the Bible says? It says that you are vital to the church. And I want you to know that I believe that. We have a lot of single people in this church. It's one of the things that I love about our church. You need to know that you are not second-class citizens. We need your gifts. We need your presence. And so I want to encourage you to lean into relationships here, to make this a family for yourself, and to press on in following Christ as a single person in the Bay Area, which is really stinking hard to do. Last, for those of you who are single and gay, I want to talk to you for just a moment. There's a gay Christian in our church who said to me recently, I feel unseen in this church. And I will tell you, that broke my heart because if, you, uh, if, you've been around, if you've been around Res Oakland for a little while, you've probably heard me tell the story that the catalyst for this church was the kindness and the hospitality that was shown to me by two gay men who invited me into their home. You know, that from the very beginning, one of the reasons we started this church was so that it would be a church, and they were not, they were not religious at all. In fact, they, they kind of freaked out. They got really afraid when I told them I was a pastor, which actually should really cause us to, to grieve as Christians, because something is really wrong. 
And so we need to look in the mirror and own some of the ways that we've really contributed to those perceptions. But I wanted to start a church for people like them, for people who felt like the church was not a place that they could go, for people who were not convinced, for people who felt like and be welcomed. Because, friends, when I read the Gospels, those are exactly the kind of people who flocked to Jesus. You know who did it? Religious people. But it was outsiders who saw him and there was something about him that they could not stay away from. And so when this person said to me, I feel unseen in this church, it broke my heart. And I want to say this this morning. For anyone in this room who can relate to that, you feel unseen. I want to publicly apologize to you. We need to do better as a church. I need to do better as a church. Jesus welcomes you in this church. I welcome you in this church. I am so glad that you are here. And you know, something that we have not named explicitly this morning is this passage's teaching, along with the rest of the New Testament teaching, along with Jesus' teaching, that Christian marriage is restricted to one man and one woman. Now, let me just say this. I know that this is a source of great pain and great controversy. I know that not everyone in this room believes that. But some of you do. And, and some of you are believing it at tremendous cost. See, whereas straight, single Christians at least have the prospect of marriage, you are seeking to follow Christ in a life of faith. And I just, I want you to hear me say a couple things. Number one, I cannot imagine the loneliness that you feel. But God sees every tear. Something else I want to say to you. We have more to learn from you than perhaps anyone else in this church. And I have. I have learned this from people who are in this boat, in our church, who are walking this road, that they know more than perhaps any of the rest of us about what it means to count the cost, to follow Jesus, to live a life of faith and trust, and to believe that Jesus is actually enough. And so if that's you this morning, I want you to hear me say this. You have an open door with me. Anytime that you do not feel seen and to help us know how we can love you better. Because if we are not becoming a family to you, then we are not the kind of church God has called us to be. W.H. Auden, he was a poet. He was a gay man who remained celibate out of obedience to Christ. He once wrote a letter to a friend and he said this, there are days when the knowledge that there will never be a place when I can, where I, which I can call home, that there will never be a person with whom I shall be one flesh seems more than I can bear. And if it wasn't for you and a few, how few like you, I don't think I could. 
Pastor and author Scott Sauls says this. He says, what if the church became the first place instead of the last place looking for this kind of friendship? What if the church had no single people because married and unmarried saw one another as true family? What if the church were the place where people discovered that being married is not a prison sentence, but an opportunity to be a prophetic witness of togetherness with Christ, where you can teach us that God's desiring and wanting of us is enough, even as you pine and wonder? What if it is true that God sets the lonely in families and people came to our church looking for that and what if they found it? And I want to add to all of that, what if we were the kind of community where you don't have to hide your sexual brokenness, but of all places in the world, the church was a place where you could be most honest and most loved wouldn't you want to be a church, part of a church like that? I want to be a part of a church like that. Because, friends, we can live without sex. And we can live without marriage. But the one thing no one can and no one should have to live without is love. And that brings us to the last point. I'm going to be very brief here. We've talked a lot about marriage today. You know, marriage is... Uh, it's, it's one of the great themes of the Bible. The Bible actually starts with a wedding. The prophet Isaiah says that when God returns to, to judge the earth, to set all things right, to finally deal with evil, that it's actually going to be like a wedding feast. You know, Jesus' very first miracle was at a wedding. The Bible makes a very out of marriage, which makes you wonder... Why did Jesus never get married? If it's so awesome and great, why didn't Jesus do it? Why did he stay single and celibate? And you know what the Christian gospel says? It says that he was saving himself for you. This is the kind of relationship God wants with you. He doesn't just want to be your king. He doesn't just want to be your shepherd. He doesn't just want to be your father. He wants to be all of those things. But the primary metaphor in all of the scriptures for how God relates to his people is a marriage. And this is why in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says something very radical. People start asking him about marriage in heaven. You know what Jesus says? He says there's only going to be one marriage in heaven. And that's his marriage with us. You know what that means? It means that even the best marriages in this world pale in comparison to the marriage that awaits you. It means that even the best sex in this world will be forgettable compared to the intimacy that awaits you. It means that if you are single or stuck in a loveless marriage, there is a day that is coming when there will be real arms for you, real embrace for you, real kiss for you. It means that every longing will be fulfilled. It means that every unmet desire will be satisfied. And it means that every tear that you cry in this world because you are following Jesus is carving out a bigger and bigger 
hole in your heart that one day God will fill so that your joy will be even greater. And you see, the reason we come to this table every week, some of you wonder, why does this church do this? The reason we come to this table every week is because this table points us to that day. It points us to what the Bible calls the wedding supper of the Lamb, when we will eat and drink with our bridegroom and we will be made whole and we will be loved. And this table tells us the lengths to which Jesus was willing to go to have you, to to, to make you his own. Paul alludes to it in verse 20. He says, you were bought at a price. You know what that price was? It was Jesus' own life. The sign of his love for you was not a diamond ring. It was a wooden cross where he gave his whole life, his whole self. It was whole life commitment. And if you hear nothing else that I have said today, I want you to hear this. Jesus asks nothing of you that he has not already done for you. He asks you to give him your whole life, to give him your singleness, to give him your sex, to give him your sexuality, to give him your marriage. He asks you to give him your whole life. You know why? Because he's given his whole life for you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, what what hope you've given us in this table and in your Son and in the love that we find here, a love that we were built for, that we long for, that, that no relationship in this world, no spouse in this world, no person in this world can give to us. Thank you for the welcome that we find at this table, whether we are gay or straight or rich or poor or black or white or Asian or old or young or man or woman, wherever we are, that you open your arms wide to us, to broken, messy people whom you love, whom you have given your son for. And so we give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.